faith works. This is the message of James, that we in our own ability cannot stand in the face of adversity. We could never find the strength to trust without faith because we don't have the capability to see above the trials that we meet, to keep our eyes focused on the King while counting the situation we are currently experiencing as joy. Faith works. This is the essence of James. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are saved. Without faith, without works, we too quickly become that man in the mirror staring at his face, but then forgets the way he looks as soon as he turns away. But with faith, with works, we stay steadfast on this journey, progressively sanctified, knowing we'll be perfected once we reach the other side. Faith works. This is the cry of James, that faith apart from works can never be sustained, that in every day and in every way we should see this truth proclaimed because it's faith that makes us doers of the word, not just hearers. It's faith that keeps us humble, not proud. It's faith that directs our tongues to bless, not to curse. It's faith that causes us to show mercy, not judgment. It's faith that leads us to true religion, not its empty substitute. And it's faith that's causing us to preach the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation with every breath that we breathe. And it will be faith that causes us to worship our God for all eternity. This is the message of James. Faith works. What's faith? Can you measure it? How do you know if you have it? How do you know whether or not you've lost it? Do you know when you can find someone and say, oh, that person has faith by way of the things that they do? How do you measure it? What we're going to be looking at this morning is a passage from the book of James continuing in our series, and this passage, perhaps more than any other in Scripture, has gotten more scrutiny and more arguments, and you might even, uh, if you know your church history well, this name probably is familiar to you, a man by the name of Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther, he thought so poorly of the passage we are about to read that he insisted that the entire book of James should be thrown out of Scripture. Now here's the, remor- the reformer. He thinks to himself, he's, he's looking at the ills within the Catholic Church in the 16th century. They had something called penance. And what that was is people could come and if they would offer a little bit more in the offering bag, perhaps hopefully you did that this morning, or if you can serve a little bit more in church, if you just did those things really well, then you wouldn't be in a place called purgatory quite as long. You could reduce the time there. And if you were a, a righteous person, a morally righteous person, you could actually make a contribution to someone else's morality so that they didn't have to be in purgatory quite as long. 
And the thing that that Martin Luther saw was, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Because all I know is that our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote the 95 theses, the 95 reasons why the Catholic Church and the Pope were on the wrong path. And that prompted a revolution, what we refer to today as the Great Reformation. Now, perhaps if you are familiar with Scripture, you've read passages of Scripture like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I have it up on the screen for you. It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so we've been watching this uh, intro video for the last six or seven weeks, and hopefully by now it's starting to sink in what is the connection between our faith and our works, because we're always tempted to ask that question, which is it? Am I saved by faith, or am I saved by works? How do we reconcile the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, and what James is going to share with us this morning? It seems as though they stand in the face of one another. How do we bring these things together? That's the question that we're wrestling with this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's go to the book of James together. It's a little bit drafty up here. I'm not so sure why, but uh, do you like my new haircut? My haircutters, they did a great job. Thanks so much for doing that. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. If you don't know where that is, go to the very back of your Bible. You're going to find the book of Revelation. Then you're going to find Jude if you start turning to the left. And then five very small books, 3, 2, 1 John, 2, 1 Peter, And then James. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. He says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, but show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous by what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Hmm. What's Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 say? I'm going to read this passage again. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Hmm. 
In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So people of God, we're back to that question. How do we reconcile Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 with James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Which one is it? Now, I'm not going to dangle a carrot out in front of you for the next 40 minutes or so. I'm going to let you know right on the front end that eventually the reformer, Martin Luther, he came to this understanding that what Paul says and what James says, they're not diametrically opposed, but they're two sides of exactly the same coin. And what my hope is for us this morning is that if we don't know this already, hopefully we can have a more robust understanding of a faith being lived out in action. So hopefully to lay a bit of a foundation for us this morning, I want to identify a couple key terms. The first term that I've highlighted in your sermon guide is this, the word faith. What does faith mean? Faith is what trusts and obeys God. Faith trusts and obeys God. And here's a definition of works. I put it this way in your sermon guide. Works are the fruit of a life of loving God and loving others. So one of the ways that I think about this, and I'm not a car guy, if you are a car guy or a car girl, please don't make fun of me, I know very little about this, but by way of an analogy, we know how byproducts work, do we not? So you have, for example, a combustion engine, the pistons are running, it's creating energy as the engine is moving, and as a result of what's happening here, there's a byproduct called exhaust, right? In the same way, what James is meaning to highlight for us is that works are not what saves us. They are simply an indication of the faith that we already have. They are a byproduct, if you will, of the engine of faith. And that's the the vital distinction that we have to appreciate this morning Because this is what Martin Luther was wrestling with. We're not saved by good deeds. There's no such thing as penance where we throw a little more in the offering plate or we serve a little bit more or we're we're sharper than the average tool in the shed and if we just do the right combination of actions, maybe, just maybe, we'll be saved. That's not salvation. Good deeds are simply the indication, the fruit of saving faith that is already alive and well within our hearts. So that's what we need to appreciate this morning. And what James means to do for us is he wants to give us three examples of what I've referred to as cadaver Christianity. Three examples of dead faith. The first one that is highlighted comes from verse 15, and it is this. Faith without works is useless. Faith without works is useless. If your Bibles are still open, look at verse 15 to 17 with me. He says this, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? It's useless. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, 
is dead. So James means to tell us that every single time a Christian lives out their faith, there's actually two benefits. The first benefit is to the recipient, in this case, a poor man or a poor woman who is lacking food or water or shelter or rest or some sort of sustenance in their life. They are lacking in a material way. They have material needs. And if you are living out your faith properly, then this person is blessed by God by way of what you are doing. And the second benefit is knowing that each of us as Christians are blessed to be a blessing God is able to bless us by the very fact that we are making a contribution to his kingdom by meeting needs of other people, by caring for them. But here's the thing that James says. Here's what ultimately grieves him. Not only are we showing a lack of faith when we move by on the other side, but we wrap it up in a bow of religious platitudes. What did he say in the scripture? Hey, God bless you, man. God bless you. May the bounties of God pour down upon you. May the floodgates open up and may he he bless you richly. May he give you everything that you need. And then you walk along by on the other side. James means to say it would be better for you to simply walk on the other side and keep going. Maybe even to sneer and say, ooh, gross, and to keep on going than to wrap it all up in a bow of religious platitudes so that when that person hears it, they know that the God you serve does nothing to care for their material needs. So James says to us, faith, if it's not accompanied by action, it is useless. Let me read a passage of scripture to you that that speaks to this straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. So if you are in James, put a tab there and start turning to the left and look for the gospel of Matthew. It's about two-thirds through your Bible. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. A very familiar passage of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31. Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right. He'll put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. But then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. People of God, as we experience the grace and the mercy of God, as we rest in that saving faith alone, our hearts will be transformed in such a way that we will have a deep, deep love for our neighbor. That's what we learned last week, right? Why don't we love our neighbor perfectly? Why aren't we more merciful? The reason is because we don't fully grasp the costliness of the grace and the mercy that has been given to us as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. And because we don't have an accurate picture of our own sin and our own brokenness that leads us to have an improper interpretation of how we ought to treat our neighbor— But if we can truly humble our hearts and recognize the costliness of God's mercy, then that will compel us to love God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Faith without works is useless. Number two, faith without works isn't really faith. Faith without works isn't faith. That's what we find in verse 17. It says this, In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. So show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Listen, you believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he gives us two examples, right? The first one is of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father considered to be righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And then verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I love how James, he kind of uh, introduces a bit of an antagonist into the discussion. You can't help but think that perhaps James has someone specifically in mind while he's writing down these words. It's like he's saying, like, let's just suppose for a moment there's some random person, (coughs) Fred, (coughs) I mean some random guy who I don't know, and uh, he comes up to you and he says, hey, James, you're so spiritual, you know, you're always doing good deeds in the name of Jesus, and that's great for you. You don't even take a salary like most pastors do. You're just a tent maker, and you're a church planter, and you're doing all these great things. That's great for you, James, but I just have me and Jesus over here, and that's good enough for me. 
And James says, you have faith? He says, yeah, I do. He says, show me your faith. Show it to me by way of what you do. You could think of a a variety of different examples. You believe that the ice is frozen enough for you to go skating? Go skate on the ice. You believe that this uh, piece of wire is going to hold you as you jump, uh, if if you jump off this cliff? Well, then go ahead and bungee jump off the cliff. You believe that the, that the structural integrity of this chair will hold your weight? Then take a seat in the chair. And the antagonist says, well, I just don't want to right now. And James says, what, you don't, you don't trust the structural integrity of the chair? Well, I, I just had a bad experience when I was a little kid. You might say, well, listen, just pretend. This, w- this is made out of magnesium-based alloy and hard steel. It can hold like 3,000 pounds, and you're like 145 soaking wet. Sit in the chair. Well, uh, you know, you ju- it's just hard to trust, you know? See what James is saying? Good deeds don't save us. It's simply an indication of whether we have faith in the first place. That's what James wants us to to take the time to wrestle in our heart of hearts. He wants to let you know whether or not you have true, genuine faith in the first place. Do you believe? Then put your butt in the chair and take a seat. That's the challenge that he issues to us. And then he gives us uh, two examples, doesn't he? He gives us an example of Abraham, and an example of Rahab. And the first one, of course, is the example of Abraham, who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? Anyone know that song? All right, some of you. Clearly, you didn't grow up Pentecostal like I did. And so here's the story about Abraham. You know, he's in his mid to late 90s. He's a little bit on the older side of the spectrum. And finally, God has graced him with a son with his wife Sarah, and he calls him Isaac, which means laughter. He is the pride and the joy of his father who has waited decade after decade after decade after decade. And finally, his heart is full and he has joy. And then God comes up to him one day, And he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Now listen, don't don't dehumanize people in Scripture and act like they're robots who just knew everything and they knew at the end of the day everything was going to be fine. They didn't know Abraham didn't know. He just knew that he had to be obedient to God. And perhaps like some people in this room, he asked a very obvious question. Why? Why? No, God, no, 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 no. God doesn't answer that question. So Abraham, he goes up to his wife Sarah and he can't even tell her what he has been instructed to do by the Lord, so he kisses her goodbye. He takes the wood and the kindling and he prepares it and he takes his little boy, his son Isaac, and they start walking up the mountainside. And halfway up the mountain, 
Even though Isaac is just a little boy, he's been with his dad enough times to know that typically there's a sacrificial lamb. And he looks up to his dad, who he trusts and loves, and he says, Daddy, where is the lamb that is to be slain? And I'm sure Abraham, with a quiver in his lip, cannot even look at his son, and he says, the Lord will provide the lamb. They keep walking up the mountain, and finally they get to the place where Abraham does all of his sacrifices, and he takes tablets of stone, and he lays them all down, and I'm sure each one feels like the entire weight of the world is upon him, and he lays all of the wood on top of the altar, and the kindling on top of the altar, and everything is prepared, and a second time Isaac says, Dad, where's the lamb that is to be slain? And this time Abraham looks at his boy and with tears in his eyes he says you are that lamb. Isaac doesn't understand but there's no struggle. He allows his father to tie his hands his wrists and his feet and the almost 100 year old Abraham picks up his little boy and he lays him on the altar. Both of them have tears running down their cheeks. He shields his son's eyes so that he can't see. His hands are shaking. He takes the knife out of his pocket and he raises it above his head the whole time wondering why, 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 and just before he goes, God says, stop! I see now that you love me more than anything else in this world. And father and son embrace, and in that moment there is a ram in the thicket. Its horn is caught, and Isaac says to dad, look, God did provide the lamb. You see, Abraham revealed his faith by sitting in the chair or at least in his particular instance, he did so by putting his trust in a faithful God in the midst of an impossible request. Fathers, mothers, here this morning, what would you do? It's an impossible request, and he was faithful. And what Scripture says in Genesis and in Hebrews and in James, it says his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He followed through on his faith by way of his actions. And then we get to a second story, and that's Rahab the prostitute. How many of you know the song of Rahab the prostitute? There is no song on Rahab the prostitute, just so you know. Not even Pentecostals sing that song. But here's Rahab, and of course she is a prostitute, and no little girl ever dreams of being a prostitute when she grows up. It's only as a result of the, the evil and the inhumane and the despicable occurring to her over and over and over again that she finds herself in this type of profession. And Rahab, she's heard about Israel's God, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who provided manna from heaven. This is the great miracle God that the ten plagues performed in Egypt. She's heard all that. She's never prayed to this God, but she's starting to believe. 
And the people of Israel, they want to take this land called Jericho as their own, so they send in spies to scope out the city. And they find themselves at Rahab's door. Now, she has a choice to make, right? She has perhaps maybe three options. The first is she could say, go away, get out of here. I want nothing to do with you. The second, if she's really tricky, she can bring them in and make them feel comfortable and then go and tell the authorities that they're there. And she will be venerated. She will be crowned. She will be supported. And everyone will be celebrating the name of Rahab as a result of bringing in these spies. Or third, she could put her own life on the, on the line by keeping them in her own place and making sure they are safe and secure. You see, Rahab, she revealed her faith by sitting in the chair. Or at least in her particular instance, she showed her faith by putting the authorities off in the wrong direction and saving Israel's spies. You see, faith without action isn't really faith at all. And then number three, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith in the end, at the end of the day, it's leading you to trust in God who desires what is best for you and to obey him in obedience and love even in the midst of the questions of life where we might be asking the question, why God? Why, why, why? I don't understand. But we can trust that God always has our best intentions in mind. You know, a couple years ago, I was invited over to uh, some family friends of ours. They, they were gone away for vacation, but they said, hey, feel free to use our house and use our pool. And so we took them up on that offer. I was really excited to watch my children interact with large bodies of water because in our backyard, we had a kiddie pool, but it's just not the same, right? So I have my son, Liam, who's here this morning, and he was only three at the time, and my daughter, Jana, she was only two, and I decided I'm going to go swimming with my kids. And I very quickly found out that my two-year-old daughter had no fear of water, which made me deathly afraid. And I had my son, Liam, who was three, and he was quite afraid of water. So here I was. He had his floaties on, and I said, Liam, jump to dad. And he wouldn't do it. Parents, have have you ever had that moment where you're talking to your kids and you're trying to convince them that the pool's really fun and you're trying to tell them, I promise you there's going to come a day where unless I threaten your life, you're not going to get out of this thing. And here he is. He's unwilling to jump into the pool. And so I have water that's below my belly button. He's got floaties on. And I'm saying, Liam, jump to dad. He goes, "I, I don't want to. Come on, I'll catch you. It'll be okay. I don't want to. Liam, come on, I'll catch you. It, everything will be fine. Come a little closer. My, my thighs are touching the edge. You're basically in my arms already. Just like take a little jump. And he won't do it. And then finally, I pick him up against his will. And there's, there's some protesting that's going on at this point. And I like dip his toes in the water, like 5%, right? I'm like, I'm holding you firmly. I have it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And he's screaming and he won't have anything of it. You see, there's something inside each and every one of us, whether it's us as kids to our parents or it's us as children to God, we might say, you know, I trust you, but the chaos of the waters below, that doesn't look so great, and so I'm not quite sure I fully trust you. 
You ever have that moment where like finally they won't let go of you, right? They're just like glue on you and you try to turn them around so that they can't see you? That's like the worst possible thing to do. They've lost sight of mom and dad. I'm like, I'm holding you. Don't worry about it. And they are deathly afraid. And I think God speaks that way to us as well. God says, Justin, listen. I got you. I'm holding you. I will never give up on you. I will never let go of you. I have your best intentions in mind. Just relax and enjoy the ride. You see, we will never know what it looks like to swim in the arms of God until we jump. But it's an indication of whether we have faith in a faithful God. So my question before we close this morning is, what do we do with all this information? What's next? Hopefully by now we've realized that uh, true, genuine faith is one that prompts us to sit in the chair. Sitting in the chair is simply an indication of faith and good deeds don't actually save us. But how do we live this out? How, How can we be sure that we are in fact Christians? So here's a foundation I want you to stand on, and I'm speaking directly to Christians this morning when I say this. Rest in your assurance of faith. Rest in your assurance of faith. Remember at the beginning, I read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, which said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves... It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Many people know Ephesians 8 and 9, but not many know verse 10 that comes right after it. This is what verse 10 says. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Hmm. We have been created for good works. And now it all comes full circle and we see that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James, they're on exactly the same page on this issue. They're coming at it from different angles, but they're on exactly the same page. Dear Christian, I hope you know this, there is no such thing as having an encounter with Jesus and remaining unchanged, no less than getting hit by a freight train and remaining unchanged. If we have true, genuine faith, then it will prompt us into action. It will prompt us into obedience. It will guide our path every single day by way of our actions, the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our children, the way we treat our finances, the way we treat our time. Everything will be changed on account of giving Jesus the steering wheel of our life. And we will begin to follow him in obedience and love each and every day. I'm thinking again of James, the author of this book, how he was a little brother of Jesus. And you might recall if you were here in the first two weeks, we talked about how James did not believe his big bro Jesus was the son of God for 30 plus years until he encountered the risen Lord. After the resurrection, he put his hands and the holes in his hands and his feet and his side, and he bowed down and he worshiped and he gave his life to Jesus. 
You think, for example, of what James talks about with regard to demons. This, I want to read this passage one more time before we close because it, it always gets me. It's verse 19. He says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Now, now get this. Just, let's just follow the, the train of thought with James for a moment here. He says, if you simply believe that the way that we get to heaven is believing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe and having all the information in our brain, that's all we need to have, then get this. Satan and his minions have far greater faith than any other person in this room, myself included. So if idle intellectualism is all we need, where we just say, you know, I believe Jesus, he actually physically came from heaven to earth, he went to Golgotha, he died on the cross, he rose again, I believe all that stuff, I have faith. Well, if you believe that, if that is the the prerequisite for getting into the kingdom of God, then know this, Satan and his minions will be first in line getting into heaven. They not only believe Jesus is Lord, but they shudder at the name of Jesus. They're shuddering right now because they know there will come a day in which Christ returns in glory and he separates the sheep from the goats, Matthew chapter 25, and he will send Satan and his minions down to hell and destruction for the remainder of the world. So here's what we have to realize. Faith isn't isn't just idle intellectualism, but it prompts us to a faith lived out. If you simply believe the stories of Jesus professed in the Bible and it doesn't change your heart, then James says this to you, congratulations, your faith has just been upgraded to demon faith. But at the end of the day, this is the definition that we've had that we started with this morning. Faith is lived out in trusting and obeying God. So here's the question for you before we close. Are you ready to sit in the chair? Are you ready to take all the information that you know, that you've had in your brain, and to say, It is now seeping down into my heart, changing me, molding me, so that nothing will ever be the same as a result of the freight train that is my encounter with Jesus. Are you ready to sit in the chair? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who loves us who is faithful to us, who longs for us to be drawn to you, that we would be obedient and trust in you. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to do this good work in us, that we would be forever changed as a result of the encounter that we've had with you, that we would give you our whole life even in those moments where we doubt, where we're led to wonder why and to question, how could these things happen to me? That we would put our trust in you because you love us deeply. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, to that end, you would lead us 
and guide us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.